God in heaven, thank you that we can indeed come to you in prayer, that you delight to hear from us. And I'm just asking that you would abide here a while, that you would bless us with inspiration and encouragement. And I pray that these testimonies would strengthen our desire and our faith when we begin to pray more earnestly. I pray, Father, that after divine service and Sabbath school, that this would best prepare us for what we're going to share this evening and how to stand at the end of time. So I just pray that we would remember the lessons learned now uh, to apply them then. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. The topic again for this morning is why prayer matters. And I'm just going to kind of give some testimonies of the power of prayer and what happens uh, when we take this seriously. The first is a former Bible study friend of mine. I don't like calling them contacts. It makes it sound like you're using them. By the way, a Bible study friend of mine is in this room right now. Her name is Selena Page. This beautiful woman sitting behind Doug Baker. Very sweet lady. And so we were, I was studying with this guy when I got, it was the first Bible studies I gave after a rise. And the man had a severe problem with anger, with bitterness, and with unforgiveness. It was so bad that every time I would give this guy Bible studies, that while I'm studying with him, something would trigger a memory in his mind of how someone in religion or in his family hurt him. And then he would just rant on it. And he was angry. He was really angry. And I would leave every Bible study from having the time with this guy, I would leave every Bible study being angry myself just because it was coming out of him and into me. And eventually I was getting kind of worn out with this. And I realized, like, I'm not just to be a doormat or... Probably not the, the most appropriate way to say this, so let me, re, let me fix it in my mind before it comes out of my mouth. Um, I'm not to be the thing that he takes his rage out on. I'll just phrase it that way, right? That's not my purpose. My purpose is to bless him and to help him to point him to Jesus who can set him free. So finally, I had to, cut, I had to draw a line in the sand. I said, brother, i got to talk about this, man. I'm really concerned for you. And I wrestled with Jesus. I said, Lord, what do I do with this guy? And the answer that God gave me was, he kind of led me to some different texts, and ended up doing a Bible study on the topic of forgiveness, okay, and the importance of forgiveness, kind of starting with David, because this guy used the excuse that in Matthew chapter uh, 5 through 7, I think it's Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus says, and anyone who's angry with someone without a cause will be in danger of judgment and of hellfire, right? And he said, I have a cause. Jesus says, if you're angry without a cause, it's bad, but he says, I have a cause, these people have hurt me, they've abused me, and he kind of liked to, there's some, some psalms that David has, you know, where he talks about asking God to knock the teeth out of his enemies, and that certainly feels like a good prayer to pray when you're upset, you know, and so this guy is trying to justify his anger, so we walked through uh, the life of David and how God intervened in his life, and then we walked through New Testament texts that talk about the topic of forgiveness, and at the end of this Bible study, I could tell that this guy's really convicted. And he realized, and I said, brother, I just have to tell you, this is killing you. You're going to be lost if you don't ask Jesus to give him the ability, to give you the ability to forgive these people. And every time you go back there, you're reliving the hurt that they put you through. By the way, they've proven that neurologically, that when you walk through in your mind either addiction experiences that you had or um, abuse experiences that you had, it's literally like going through it again in your mind. And it's just making those pathways deeper and deeper in your mind that are harder to get out of. So anyway, I get to the end of the studies with this guy, and I tell him, like, look, this, this isn't good. He's convicted, but he's starting to get a little upset with me. 
because I'm kind of stepping on his toes in dealing with the thing that makes him happy, which is anger. It's kind of weird. But anyway, that's, that's his thing. So I ended up leaving Illinois. I had to have this difficult conversation with a guy. I leave Illinois to come work at a school called Heritage Academy. You've probably never heard of it. And so I'm living at 595 Fieldwood Lane, where I'm sleeping right now at Nilda's house, and, which was previously my house. And I was reminded on a Wednesday that I forgot to pray for so-and-so, that I haven't prayed for so-and-so in quite a while. And so I kneel down and I pray for this guy and just say, Lord, I really wish that you would set this guy free. I don't know where he is. I don't know what's going on in his life right now, but I'm asking that you would set him free. This is a series of months after I had those Bible studies with him and after I left. Sabbath morning, I get a phone call and the caller ID says the guy's name. And I have one of those moments of, it's Sabbath. I really don't want to deal with somebody's baggage right now. And so I didn't answer the phone. Now, I repented of that later. I need Jesus. I'm, I'm just letting you know. That's not a good thing to do. I need Jesus. And I repented later. But I just didn't want to deal with that. So the guy leaves a voicemail. And on the voicemail, I can tell he's super convicted. So this is three days after I prayed for him. He's super convicted. He's talking very calmly, very subdued and reflective. And he says, hey, um, I'd, uh, yeah, I really need to talk if you can call me when you get this. I listened to the voicemail on Sabbath, but I still don't want to deal with this guy's baggage, and so I don't call him until Sunday. Again, that's not recommended. It's sin. It's selfishness, but that's what I did. So I call him on Sunday, and he ends up talking to me, and he says, man, like, I've just been thinking about it recently, and, you know, I, you showed me that what I was doing was wrong, and it was hurting me, and it was even hurting you. And he said, and when you showed me that, I got mad at you. He said, I'm sorry. He said, I've listened, I've, I've done that Bible study like 10 times. I've read it, and I've read it, and I've read it, and I've read it. And I've done it like 10 times. And I just want you to know, that I'm sorry, man. Like, I shouldn't have done things that way. I was hurting you. I was hurting other people. I'm really sorry. Everything changed for this guy in that sense. Here I am thinking it's a fruitless venture. Oh, man. Doesn't he look adorable in a suit? A handsome young man right there. Um, sorry, it's my neighbor, Bubba. Uh, I lost my whole train of thought, but it was worth it. Good morning, Bubba. Happy Sabbath, buddy. So as I'm... Anyway, I was super convicted that I just needed to get distance from this situation. I end up moving anyway, but I forget about the guy, but then I pray for him, and within three days of that, the guy is super convicted and realizes that he did something he shouldn't have done, and he repented. He asked for my forgiveness and realized that he needed to forgive the people who had hurt him. That was just one example, but that's kind of the, the, the least exciting of the bunch, even though it was pretty powerful for me. It reminded me that I, one, can't stop praying for people, and two, that when we do pray, God actually does stuff. We may not see the results immediately, but God does respond, and in divine service, we'll kind of cover some practical principles on prayer and communing with God. But I want to read the next one. So a friend of mine that was in need of revival, it's someone that I went to Bible college with, and I was in contact with one of their parents. We were praying together for their family and some other things that were going on in their life. And I just had a burden for their family and what they were going through. And my friend is really wrestling. All the plans that they're making for their life just don't work out. I'm going to go do this, and then that didn't work. And then I'm going to go do a mission trip here, and then they didn't go and do mission work there. And then I'm going to... And that can be really discouraging when you're telling people that you feel that this is where God is leading you, and they keep not happening. That can be really discouraging. I've actually been through that once. And so this particular individual, we've been praying for them, along with their siblings and for the rest of the family, for a while, the mother and I. And the time comes that God convicts me on a Wednesday 
that I need to pray bigger. God, God just told me to swing for the fences, pray bigger. You're not praying big enough. Okay. And so the most big thing that I could think of to pray for this individual was that they would have a life course altering encounter with Jesus Christ himself. Like Saul on the road to Damascus. That they would just have such a profound encounter with Jesus that the entire course of their life would be radically changed. So we pray on a Wednesday. Now this person's singing for an evangelistic series in a local area, not too, too far from their church, um, but you know, within like an hour or so or something. So we pray on a Wednesday, and the mother at the end of the prayer says, you know what? I want to join you in this. This has encouraged me. I want to join you in this because I want to see them really be able to get to the next level in their experience. So we pray earnestly and fervently, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Friday night is Halloween. Friday is Halloween, but Friday night, they're singing at this evangelistic series. I'm giving a Bible study, so I don't know all of what's going on. But on Friday, I just keep wrestling with God, and I even asked him. I said, God, would you do it on Halloween, on a day that's renowned for darkness, right? On a day that is known for darkness and bad things, would you do something awesome? Would you reclaim this individual and make them more yours than they have ever been? And that was my plea with him. Friday evening, this individual at the evangelistic series, they sing, and then they're listening to the message, and something about the message it's like God just stepped into their brain and spoke to them. And the thing that God told them was, the way that you want your life to look and the way that I want it to look are not the same. And that you have one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom. They had envisioned, you know, that, that their life is going to look like this. That they're going to, you know, get married to a wonderful person. They're going to live in a beautiful house in a beautiful town. And they're kind of making their own plans on how life will work. Now, God obviously desires your happiness. Don't misunderstand me here. But what we think will make us happy and what will actually make us happy may not be the same. We just need to be open to what God wants. So this person is super convicted. They text their mother, who was on the other side of the country uh, with their husband for a, a class reunion, and all they text their mother is conviction central. And so the mother texts me and says, God's answered. I don't know what it is, but I know that God has answered. I don't find out until the next day, but I wake up the next morning and there's snow all over the ground. This is right after Thanksgiving or right after uh, Halloween, which is really early for this. But God convicted me that he has made this situation as white as snow. That what seemed like a day of darkness, it was an amazing contrast a day that's renowned for darkness, and then the symbol that God says, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. In that moment, from one to the other, God assured me that he had heard our prayers and that he had made this situation white, brand new. I find out the next night what happened in this evangelistic series, and I could not believe what God did. Could not believe it. Now, on, I should have because that's what I asked God to do. I pray that they would have a life course altering encounter with Jesus. But I didn't know that he would give them a life course altering encounter with Jesus, and he did. And he did something very similar. That mother and I were praying again later in March, a few months later. And they'd gone through a lot of darkness right after GYC, so we prayed for them on that, and the darkness started to dissipate. And then we get to March, and the mother just had this strong burden that this, we need to be praying that they would think for themselves, that's a battle a lot of us face, that we start believing lies. That's why we cover that this week about ourselves, about God, running from the will of God, and so on. 
And the mother just prayed so earnestly. I wish you could have heard the tone of their voice. But they said, I pray that they would think for themselves. And we prayed earnestly. The very next morning, I get a phone call from this friend of mine. And they are absolutely hysterical. They're breathing really heavily. They're super nervous. And they're crying. I can hear that they're crying. And they said, I, they said, I, I need you to pray for me. And they, they talked about what they were going through. And they said, I don't really know if praying together is really the best thing right now. But just, I just need someone to pray. And then they said, like you pray. I, I need you to pray. And I can't talk to my family about it, but I need someone to pray like you pray. Would you pray for me? This whole, nothing's more important to me unless this gets fixed, the relationship with their mother. They've gotten frustrated, and they were being impatient with their mother and causing hardship, and their mother's love language is words of affirmation. And so whenever they're tearing their mother down because they're frustrated about stuff, it's hurting their mother, and they hate that, and they want, nothing is more important to them than this being fixed. Would you please pray? Sure. And for 30 days, you got it. 30 days later, I texted them and asked them what happened, and they said, we're closer than we've ever been. It's like we fell in love all over again, and we're closer than we've ever been. And this person in the relationship with their mother and the relationship with God is dramatically better now than it was in October of 2014. Why? Because of prayer. Prayer truly does move the hand of God. It's a real thing. You're not just saying stuff and placing an order at Burger King and hoping they get it right. This is real. Prayer actually gives God permission to do things that he could not do if we didn't pray. I want to read the next one now or go through the next one. Ah, I don't think I'll have time to do that. I'll come back to it if I can. So I had a friend of mine who I met right before I went to Arise. And they're actually one of the reasons why I went to Arise. And I got to see them again at GYC, I think in 2013 in Orlando. And I could tell that something wasn't right. Uh, Them and their wife, they were together. They, they They were doing their thing. But just something seemed different to me, and I didn't fully know why. I hadn't met the wife before, but that was all that I knew. Some time goes by. It's like a year later. We talk kind of off and on, but a year later, this individual confides in me and tells me what happened in their marriage situation. And it's awful. I cannot envision a worse thing happening to a married couple. I literally can't. The spouse, the wife, had committed an affair. And when the person finally told me what was going on, he said, because I, I asked him, like, what's going on, man? He says, do you have time to talk later? I said, yeah. And he said, my wife had an affair, and my response was, oh, no. And then he said, with who? And I'm not going to mention that, but it was a family member of theirs. And my response was just, wow. That's all that could come out of my mouth at that stage. And I felt so helpless, I, knew, I did not know what to tell this individual. Now, they had a history of having suicidal thoughts, of burning, of, of doing self-harm. And I was really, really worried for them and what they were going through. Just a complete spiral. It tore his family apart. He and both of his siblings, in a moment, left God. Like his sister was getting ready to be a medical missionary and left God in a moment when they heard what happened. He just was wrestling with trying to make sense of this and was just wrestling to stay with God. And the other brother, I think, was wrestling to stay with God. But this caused severe damage to this household and to the whole family and all of what's going on. Just an awful, devastating situation. And I just felt so helpless. And all I knew to do was pray was to listen 
and to share with them some things. And I mentioned to them how God is able to sustain us in the midst of suffering. And he said, you know, I used to believe that. And I used to believe that there was virtue in suffering, but I don't think I want to believe that anymore. I just, I just can't. I've been sticking things out for principle for far too long. The, the affair, they confessed that. They worked through that, the family member and the, and the wife. They talked about it. And then it happens again later. And he just can't go on anymore. And so some months go by, and, he te- and I'm still wrestling with how to best invest in this guy and to tell him about the truth as it is in Jesus and to point him back to Jesus, that Jesus has not forsaken him. Even if his wife has, Jesus hasn't. And so I pray, and I get a text message from him, trying to help him. And what he sends me in response is a picture of his forearm where he's burned himself. And he says, I don't think I'm going to make it, make it much longer. And I'm just, I didn't even send anything in response. I didn't know what to send in response in this whole situation. And I just feel completely helpless. I have no answers for them. I don't know what to do. And the only thing I know to do is to just wait. The International Festival or International Food Fair, whatever you guys have here, that was coming up the next day. This is on, on a Friday, I think. And so Sunday, I'm supposed to leave from there to come back here. But something just told me that I'm, I'm not to come back just yet. And so I end up having Samuel, um, my roommate, teach my Bible class Monday morning. And I stayed where I was. But I didn't know why. My friend at the stage that I was visiting, another friend of mine from Arise, he... Um, he got his wife is this amazing like wheeler and dealer on, on Craigslist, and kind of like Tanya, they just like they find stuff, they can flip stuff, and it's like this industry in and of itself. So she had bought this bedroom suite for a super good deal, and so my buddy Henry works for OCI. He uh, OCI has like a hundred units, apartment units in, in the greater Chattanooga area, and my friend Henry does the maintenance for all these buildings. He used to flip houses and stuff. And being have a background of a Bible worker, it's a great person to be in people's homes and fixing stuff and investing in them. So Henry borrows OCI's truck, and we go over to pick up this furniture somewhere on the other side of Chattanooga. And uh, we get there, and I notice that there's a book on the dashboard, and it's a book by Roger Morneau, who was a big deal to me. In fact, Jason's dad, um, Rich Sutton, pointed me to the Incredible Answers to Prayer book that Roger Morneau book, wrote, and that's whenever my prayer life actually really started to, to really turn into something that was actually real. Uh, that's when I started walking and stuff was that summer, and when Jay turned me into a man. Appreciate that. This building here. I'll never forget that. He and Rich both. And so in that situation, I, I see the book by Roger Morneau, but I didn't read it. But something kept telling me there's something there for me. And again, the context of this is I'm wrestling with what to send to this friend whose wife has committed an affair, who's thinking of killing themselves and aren't knowing what to do. So we load the furniture into the, the back of the truck, and it was like a, a game of Tetris. We put in, we had to pull out and rearrange, then put in again, and then pull out. We eventually got it to work. We closed the tailgate, and it's now dark outside, but God just really convicts me, pick up that book. It's a paperback sharing book. It's called The Incredible Power of Prayer. So it's a shorter book by Roger Morneau, and it's split in half, right? It's just cheap glue. The cover's off the book, and the book is torn in half. And they even have, like, an address written on there on, like, someone's door they need to fix, right? It's whoever the other OCI maintenance guy is. They got addresses written in the borders of the book. It's, it's completely um, split in half. And so I don't know what to do, but God just convicts me, read this. I want to read to you this small section here of Roger Morneau's book. 
Remember, the context is, I don't know what to tell this person because they think that their marriage is as good as dead. They might as well be dead, and they're just trying to make sense of life. This is from a section called Lost and Found. This is page 108 of um, The Incredible Power of Prayer. It's a sharing book you can get at the ABC in Collegedale. Here is an outstanding illustration of how the stabilizing influence of the Holy Spirit can restore spiritually wayward individuals. Shortly after my first prayer book came off the press, I received a letter from a woman whose husband had left her almost four years before. She was particularly impressed by the fact that before I pray for a person who does not serve God, I first ask that the Father will appropriate the merits of Christ's blood to the person in need, always conscious that the individual's redemption has already been paid for. When I read in your book, they said that we can pray for the Lord to forgive another's sins, I was astounded and began praying for my husband with new faith and hope. She said that she and her husband were both in their 30s, had good jobs and health, and had looked forward to a bright future. Employed by a multinational corporation, the man spoke three languages, which quickly propelled him up the corporate ladder. Before long, the demands of the job began to take him away from home days at a time. And it wasn't long before the lavish lifestyle of the corporate world began having its mark on him. Even his character was changing and that he became quite critical of me and seemed to be looking for occasions to disagree on most everything I said. He began to criticize the church and its people, and the time came that I found myself going to church alone. As time passed, he began wearing expensive jewelry, and not long after I became aware of that, he was smoking. And when he was brought home drunk from a Christmas party, he added to my disappointment by stating that he was also having an affair with his secretary. Now God has my attention. So the book is torn in half, sitting on the dashboard, and I just pick up the half that's in front of me. I just start reading. I don't know where to start in this book. That's just where the book was torn, in a truck that I shouldn't be in, on a day that I shouldn't be there, reading a book that doesn't belong to me, wrestling with what to say to this friend of mine whose wife had an affair and is thinking of killing themselves. Our home became a place of contention and unrest. At the time, I thanked the Lord that we didn't have any children to be torn apart by the terrible discord. I did all that I could to have us seek the help of a Christian counselor, but to no avail. In fact, he moved out and blamed me for breaking up our home. In a telephone conversation, she told me that she didn't hear about him or hear about him for almost two years. Then she found out that he was in deep trouble with his employer. He had made several decisions that had cost the corporation to lose vast amounts of money. Before long, the company terminated him, and he left the area so that she lost track of him. His experience at the multinational corporation now made it impossible to obtain similar employment, which drove him to heavy drinking. Later, she found out that he tried gambling and was successful at it for a time. Next, he got involved in drugs, causing him to lose control of his life and everything he possessed. He thought of killing himself. Again, God's got my attention. But discovered that he didn't have what it took to carry on the discovered plan, um, with, with, which made him even more embarrassed. That was the most shocking to his manhood, to realize he was some kind of coward, his wife told me. Meanwhile, she acquired a copy of my book and read it, and was especially impressed with the chapter, Praying for the Ungodly and the Wicked. She wrote to ask if I would join her in praying for her husband, who she hoped was still alive. I wrote back to assure her that the Holy Spirit would surely minister the graces of redemption to the man, as she and I sought God's help. Knowing that both demons and Christ were determined to do in this man's life, or knowing what both the demons and Christ were determined to do in this man's life, I became bolder in my determination that Satan would not have his way, but that Christ would. 
With this man, as with everyone else I pray for, I relied on the mighty power of the Holy Spirit to overpower and render non-operative the enemies of Jesus Christ in all he is determined to save. I assured the woman that I would put both her and her husband's name on my perpetual prayer list. Daily and without fail, I would present them before Jesus. I asked only that she keep me posted on what was happening in their lives. About a year went by. This is amazing. About a year went by. Then one evening, she had on the national television news as it interviewed a group of homeless people in a distant city. The people were living in the back of an abandoned factory under a highway overpass. The state wanted to demolish their shacks and move them elsewhere. As she was cooking, she heard a familiar voice. Turning around, she saw her husband on the screen. If he had not spoken, she would have never recognized him. He wore a beard and had long hair down his back, and she said, looked like a tramp and was a pitiful sight. When she stated that he obtained most of his, or when he stated that he obtained most of his food from garbage cans behind restaurants, she burst into tears. It broke her heart. Despite her sorrow, she was thankful that he was still alive, and that fact gave her hope of better things to come. Check this out. The next day, she contacted the news network and learned where the interview had been done. Arranging to have some time off from work, she began her search for her husband. She's looking for homeless people in a distant city, trying to find her husband. But some time later, she steered her car between shacks and old broken-down machinery to reach a group of men warming themselves by a fire in a steel barrel. She began to worry about her safety and made sure that her car was carefully locked. One of the men told her what shack to go to, adding that it had no door. She would have to wedge her way between a large piece of heavy canvas and the shack to reach the opening. The woman found her husband in his 8 by 10 foot shack, lying on a pile of broken down cardboard boxes about 20 inches in height that he used to insulate himself from the cold of the pavement. As he got up to let some more light as she yeah, as he got up to let in some more light into the place, she threw herself into his arms saying, "I will never let you go." Stunned by her action, he kept repeating, "Please let me go. I'm filthy. I'm disgustingly filthy." It was late autumn in that distant eastern city, and a light snow was falling. Getting cold, she invited him to sit with her in the car. Refusing to enter the car lest he dirty it, he stood by the door while she kept the window partly down. As the snow continued to fall, he soon resembled a snowman. Would he sit in the car if she covered the seat with a blanket, she asked? When he said he would, she drove off to return 45 minutes later with a car blanket, uh, with a car blanket and an abundance of hot food from a fast food restaurant. The sight of him feasting on what he considered food fit for a king brought joy to her heart. Silently, she sent a melody of praise ascending to God for bringing her husband back into her life. She believed that God was marvelously answering her prayers. It took a whole week of talking before he agreed to resume living with her. She discovered that once a person's life has deteriorated to the degree his had, only special divine grace can transform it back again. When at the end of the first day she had not succeeded in getting him out of his shack, she returned to her motel. That evening she did much praying and sought special guidance on how to handle the situation. She desperately wanted him to resume a normal life again. Before retiring for the night, she opened her Bible for something to meditate upon, and glancing down at the right-hand page, her eyes fell upon the following words. If the Spirit of God that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his Spirit that dwelleth in you. Romans 8.11 That's it, she said to herself. My husband's mind needs to be recreated by the power of the Spirit of God to what it once was. 
to the degree of sanity that he once possessed. And down on her knees she went, pouring out her heart to God. Five days passed and everything seemed at a standstill. Then an idea entered her mind. What my husband needs is to hear of God's power and love operating on people's behalf in these modern times. I'll read him portions of Morneau's book. That she did, and God began to work through those feeble words. Slowly he began to respond to the Spirit in her suggestions that she and he could still have a bright future together if they would make God first in their lives. I couldn't stop the tears running down from my face as I listened to him talk and realized that the Holy Spirit was bringing my husband back from the dead. He had died spiritually, and now he was alive again, telling me of the joy that he once had when serving God. Then she received the shock of her life when he said, Okay, Linda, not her real name, I accept your invitation for us to live once again as husband and wife. That is, if you can get transferred by your company to a city where no one knows us. I couldn't face people who knew me in the past. Meanwhile, you'll have me stay a few miles out of town, am I right? Again, she reassured him that she would do all that she had promised earlier. It took a couple of days to persuade him to go to a barber shop, to clothing stores, and to clean himself up so that he could live like a normal person once more. So it was by the mighty outworkings of the Holy Spirit that Linda did obtain a transfer to another city, and to her great surprise, it was a promotion that involved a substantial increase in pay. Both are now living happily together in the Lord. Both their Christian walks have, she says, matured under the nurturing of the Spirit of God. Private people, Linda had once asked me that I never tell anyone about her husband's experience. I had promised to abide by her wishes. However, more recently, I began to feel that I should ask permission to include it in this book as a means of exalting our Savior's love and power. They agreed as long as I didn't mention their names or where the events had taken place. And I believe their experiences give glory to God in the highest. Isn't that amazing? So imagine being me, sitting in a truck that I shouldn't be in, in a town that I shouldn't be in, on a day that I shouldn't be there, reading a book that doesn't belong to me, that's been torn in half, and is sitting at that very section of the book, while wrestling with what to tell this friend whose wife had an affair twice, and who's thinking of killing themselves. So I texted them and said, we need to talk. And I had this conversation with them, and I told them the whole story of what I just told you. And I said, now you tell me why I was in a town that I shouldn't have been in, on a day that I shouldn't be there, in a truck that doesn't belong to me, reading this book. You tell me why that happened. And the other side of the phone was silent. And then the only thing he can mumble is, some would say it's a sign. He said, yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking. I said, what are you going to do about it? He says, well, I guess I need to pray. That sounds like a good idea. Can we pray? And we did. This story does not have a happy ending at this stage. The choice is theirs. I have no idea what God is going to do with this. I don't know. That marriage ended in divorce, and of all days, today is actually their anniversary. And my heart hurts for this brother, because I know that this is not an easy day for them. I know what God told me. What God is going to do from this, I don't know. But I do know that God cares, and I do know that God hears and answers prayer, and I do know that the choice is still going to be ours in the end. That's what I know from this story at this stage. 
But it gives me hope to know that if we bring our earnest petitions before God, we're going to see answers. If we mean it, if we want these people saved, we will see God move. What they do with what God does, that's their call. But we will see the hand of God move. Amen? Cry out to God in a text message. You probably won't be able to read this from back there, but I'm going to actually go back one. So a few weeks ago, um, our ministry has been fighting some tenacious battles. Ever since Ryan and the co-founder of the ministry started this ministry, Unseen Media Group, they've gone through severe hardship. It's cost them a lot. How Ryan is still alive is a miracle to me, to be honest with you. Um, And through the grace of God, Ryan had the courage and the faith to take a step forward to hire people, which we didn't have money to pay, and to begin doing the work that God laid upon their heart to do, to train young people to be filmmakers and to do evangelism. There are three people sitting in the pews behind you there who are interns in that training program that never should have existed if the enemy had his way. They're sitting right there. Amazing, beautiful young women who want to serve God with the gifts and talents they have. Beside them is another amazing, beautiful young woman who's our director of development, who's been a great blessing to our ministry. And I work here too. But God in his mercy has opened doors for this ministry to do something that it wasn't able to do when Ryan was fighting by himself with seemingly no hope. And yet God opened the door for us, but the battle has still been real. We've wrestled with finances, we've wrestled with other things, but yet somehow people's lives are being changed. The work is still going forward. People believe in what we're doing. And the general conference, departments of the general conference, church supporting ministries, academies, and others, Hope Channel 3 ABN, they all love what we're doing with what little that we have and want to work with us. And it's vindicated the fact that God wanted this thing to start and wants it to work. But we've gone through severe hardship, and and it's been very, very difficult as of late. And I've had some, some personal financial battles in the midst of this. God convicted me to, to go through a process of getting a vehicle. I begged him, don't make me get a loan. I have a loan. And the reason why I didn't want God to have me get a loan is because I didn't want to have to trust God every month. I didn't want to have to be terrified of whether I could meet my car loan payment or not. And yet somehow God has continued to provide along the way. Sometimes it doesn't come on time, but it always comes before the next month's payment is due. And so with the miracles that we've been seeing, it's been encouraging, but we get those moments of discouragement, don't we? Faith work is difficult. My buddy Neville Peter, we were talking in Philadelphia, and he says, we were sitting in the car, I was driving in to go change clothes at the house before a concert we had that night. He says, man, I want to run something by you. I've been kind of thinking about this, and I just want to know what you think. He says, I think faith is messy. And he said, what do you think about that? And I said, Neville, I think you're right. I never thought about it that way. That's probably the best definition I think I could hear, though. Because it's not promising, you know, that that living a lifestyle that's based upon faith is easy. It's awesome. We get to see stuff that other people don't get to see because we're risking our necks on the battle lines. But it's also really scary. It's really difficult, and it can be really discouraging at times. So, yeah, I would say that faith is messy. I think Neville is right. But somehow God continues to keep the thing going, And we're still doing the work. But I was having one of those moments of deep, deep discouragement, right? I'm walking through the aisles of a store. I was supposed to go meet a guy that I used to hang out with and study with, but he he got called into work. So I started to kind of start driving around and just walking through stores. And I just had this this heavy heartache because my financial situation is such a mess. I can't even buy like little things, you know? And I just, I just let out a cry to God, of all places, in the food aisle of Big Lots in Carbondale, Illinois. 
And I just let out a cry to God. I don't know if you ever had this, where you just gave God every ounce of pain in your heart, and you just let him have it. Now, I didn't yell in the middle of of big lots. I didn't want to make a scene. But in my heart, I just gave Jesus everything. And in the back of my mind, all I really want to do is drown my misery in a cinnamon crunch bagel from Panera across the street. I want to run to comfort food, and I just want to escape the frustration and the hardship I'm going through right now. But I let out a cry to God, and I just asked him to do I said, God, is this really what this is going to look like? Is this really going to be this way continually? And, but I said, I'm willing to trust you. If this is what it has to look like, fine. But is, this, is it always going to be this way? So I get in my car, and I drive over to Panera across the street, and I just sit. And I sit, and I sit, and I sit. By the way, cinnamon crunch bagels from Panera are not sin. That's not my point here. Just so I make that clear. I don't want anybody freaking out about this. I'm like, man, this guy, he thinks bagels are sin. I'm not saying that. But I knew that the moment that I set foot in that place and bite into that bagel, I'm telling God that he's not enough for me, and that's sin. I knew it. It could be anything. It could have been a cigarette. It could have been alcohol. It could have been anything. But in that moment, the lowest hanging fruit and the easiest temptation for me to fulfill was to go do that. And I'm sitting in the parking lot wrestling because I know what the truth is. I know God loves me. I know God cares for me. And I know that God has provided for me. And I know that doing this is going to break God's heart. It's not eating the bagel. It's what eating the bagel represents. And I just come to terms with the fact that I'm not going to fulfill this desire even though everything in my heart wants to. And I said something that's going to make you laugh, and I don't care. I said, God, I want you to be my cinnamon crunch bagel. And then I said, and I want you to be in everything that I wanted to run to in that moment. Freedom from financial difficulty. I just listed the whole thing off. I want you to be this, 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 and this. I want you to be enough for me today. I want you. I'm choosing to have you be everything that I'm looking for. And I started my car, and I drove away from that place, knowing good and well that there's another Panera on my way home, but at least we've made it half the way there. I go and visit my grandmother, who's absolutely miserable without Jesus. Her life is miserable, and she won't accept that. Then I walk out to my car, and there's a text message waiting for me that says this. A good friend of mine, who I've known for years, Say, God put you on my heart today for special prayer. It was a stronger urgency than normal. Not for sure why. Hope you're doing well. And my immediate thought was, when? When did God tell you you need to be praying for me? Because I'm sure of it. It's in the Isle of Big Lots in Carbondale two hours ago. I just know it. And so I asked him, bless you, how long ago was that? And he says, well, I've been thinking about you since yesterday. Because I was wrestling the day before with some of the financial stuff that we were going through. And, and he says, I've been saying short prayers for you since. But just a little while ago, I had the impression that I need to pray with importunate prayer. For your ministry, for your struggles, your companion, and your overall happiness. And I hope all is well. So I said, I got a story for you, man. I said, if you've got time, let's talk. And he says, is it okay if I give you a call tomorrow unless something is wrong? So I said, nothing wrong, but the ministry of myself are wrestling pretty heavily with finances and discouragement. And I said, that's why you were impressed to pray. And he says, I'll call you shortly tomorrow then. Have to get up early. Or I'll call you tomorrow then. I have to get up pretty early. Honestly, that was my first impression yesterday was finances and stress. 
And then he sends me three Bible verses. 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Psalm 55, 22, and 1 Peter 5, 7. 1 Corinthians 15, 58 says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. How's that for relevancy? The next one was Psalm 55, verse 22. Cast your burden on the Lord and he shall sustain you. He shall never permit the righteous to be moved. And the third, 1 Peter 5, 7, casting all your care upon him for he cares for you. Young people, did God hear my prayer two hours before that? Absolutely. So then I text him and say, yeah, it's weighing on us. My personal bills are overdue and the ministry is the same. We believe that God is on our side and a breakthrough is just before us, but the battle's been pretty fierce. And I said, your impression encourages me that God is still working and hearing. A couple hours ago, I let out a cry to God about my personal situation, and I think your text was to let me know that he heard. And this is what he says. He says, man, my prayers were totally overrun with it. He was praying for one thing, and he says, God just barged into my mind and interrupted what I was thinking about. I couldn't pray for what I was praying for anymore. And he told me, he totally changed what I was praying about. And God let me know that I had to not only pray for you, but I also needed to let you know to be encouraged. Is there a God in heaven who loves this skinny kid up here? Who hears and answers prayer for this skinny kid up here? That's what I took from this. God does care, God does hear, and that when we give Him the deepest desires of our heart, stuff happens. God moves, God hears. And He says, be strong, brother, good night. I said, praise God, thanks, pal, good night. These experiences have shown me that prayer is absolutely a necessity. Because the people who aren't praying and aren't praying for other people, are not seeing the miracles that can sustain their faith in the midst of hardship, difficulty, and barrenness, and famine in their spiritual experience. Moments like this remind me that there's a God in heaven who cares, who hears and answers prayer, and wants to provide for me, and you, but for me to even have the courage and the willingness to pray in moments of darkness, I need to remember what God has done in my life. This did that for me. This is one of those things that was a shot in the arm for me to realize that, yeah, this thing is real. And he does hear and care. So when you're praying and you feel like, I just don't know if God hears me, I don't know if God cares, but you're pouring out your heart to God, he wants you to know today that he hears. I don't know how it's going to look, I don't know how God's going to respond, but I do know that he hears and that he does not leave his people to suffer ad infinitum. And I know that from experience. These are just a handful of the miracles I've seen in the last three and a half, nearly four years, once I learned to actually pray. Now, what I want to cover in divine service is the practical way in which we can engage in a relationship with God, how to commune with God, and how to pray. And both of these are going to be used as the preface for this evening's message on how to be ready for the end of time. Many of us are scared to death for what's about to come upon this earth. And we don't know how to get ready. We don't know what to do. Everyone's saying, get ready, get ready, get ready. But I don't know how. I don't know what to do. And I'm terrified. And there's a really practical way in which God always intended for us to get ready. And we're going to cover that this evening. It's going to be kind of based on what we covered this morning. But I want to know, has this made sense? Has this been practical and inspirational? Yeah? 
Well, I want to close with prayer then, and we'll have a brief break before we go into divine service, and then we'll close uh, the morning session after that. God in heaven, I thank you that you care, that you do hear and answer prayer, but even when we see huge miracles, we still have a choice to make. And someone I love with all of my heart is wrestling with that truth right now. A few people are. I thank you that you've brought me through the hardship and the difficulty and that you've never left me nor forsaken me. And I pray that the testimony of your faithfulness in my life and in theirs, regardless of how they responded, I pray that you would use that to minister to these young people and to these staff and to our visitors and to whoever's watching or listening. I pray that you would use this to remind them that there's a God in heaven who indeed hears and cares. We love you, though not as much as we should. And we ask that you would change that by giving each of us a life course altering encounter with Jesus. Give us that gift, I pray. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.